Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. So we're going to finish Ephesians 3 today, which means we're, we're done with Ephesians. If you kind of came in late on this series, um, we kind of did it weird. Uh, we started with Ephesians 4 and did 4, 5, and 6 in the latter part of um, last year, and then we picked this up after the holidays and, and all of that. Uh, and we will have gone through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 at the conclusion of today's service. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And this last, uh, these last verses of Ephesians chapter 3 are actually a prayer. It's a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the believers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, in this verse... At the end of this chapter, at the end of this section of his letter, he pins this prayer. And he begins and he says, for this reason, he's telling them, this is why I pray. This is, this is why I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to understand that, we have to go back up to the preceding verses where Paul is talking about coming to, to see and coming to know the fellowship of this mystery, the gospel, to be able to see as he, as he says in his letter in the preceding verses, to be able to, to know, to be able to see, to be able to communicate about the unsearchable riches of Christ with the intent that the church would make manifest, would make known the manifold, the multifaceted, the multicolored, the variegated wisdom of God. And who are we making this wisdom known to? He says in verse 10, we're making it known to powers and to principalities in heavenly places. If you think that your life is just about you here and the people around you, you need to understand that you don't live in a vacuum, that we live in a created world that has an unseen realm called the spirit realm. And your life gives witness to those entities, angels and demons. The Bible calls them powers and principalities and heavenly places. 
And you may think nobody sees your life. Nobody knows about your life. Well, I promise you God does. And I promise you those in the unseen realm, as we said last week, there really are watchers watching. There are watchers watching us all the time. And our life gives witness to those watchers. It gives witness to the manifold wisdom and the glory of God. That should make us stop and consider our life. That should make us stop and consider how we're walking out our faith. It should make us stop and consider what what are those watchers seeing? What are they watching? How are they viewing my life? And what is my life communicating about the wisdom of God and the glory of God? Or is my life just communicating that I am my own God because I live to myself? And I live for myself. So we as believers, and this is Paul's point, writing to the church, we as believers need to understand that our life is greater than ourselves. Our life is greater than just the things that we're able to touch and feel and reach to that are within our reach. That our life transcends this earthly realm. And our lives give witness into a spiritual realm, into an eternal realm. And so Paul is saying to the church, you need to understand this. You need to understand that that you're not the only ones suffering. You need to understand that you're not the only ones battling. And that's what was happening in this Ephesian church, that they were under persecution. And Paul was letting them know, hey, God is aware. He's well aware of your situation. Because remember, go back to the first chapter. God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, Paul says, God chose you in him before he created the world. So you can't say now that you're in the world and you're suffering under the persecution of this world that God has somehow forgotten you because God can't forget you because God chose you in him before there was a world. And that was Paul's point. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what your relationship is to God, this God of the creation, this God who is the sovereign, who is over all things. Yes, he is even over your suffering. Yes, he is even over your persecution. Yes, he is even over your tribulation. He's over all of this. And so we come to verse 14 and Paul says, this is the reason. This is the summation here. He says, this is the point of my prayer. This is why I bow my knee. To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is another of the many examples we see in the life of Paul and the other writers of Scripture. We see this throughout the Scripture where the power of prayer was used to affect the transformation of the lives of God's people. Paul says, I'm praying that your lives be transformed, I'm praying that your minds be transformed, I'm praying that your hearts be transformed. I'm praying that you will get your eyes off of the earthly and get them onto the eternal and understand that God is Lord over all things. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul reminds those believers in Ephesus 
And he reminds us today that, that they are not, and we are not alone, but that we are part of a greater family that resides in heaven and on earth. When Paul says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, he's reminding the believers that we have a family that's present with us, not just in our city, not just in our congregations, but, but in this earth. But we also have a family that's present with us, who has gone on before us, who is with the Lord in glory now, but we're all still part of the same family. This is so important, church. I, I want to make another plug right now. This is why I think it's so important. I want to encourage you to come to the Sunday morning uh, Bible study at 915. It's dealing specifically with suffering and the sovereignty of God. And you and I, we all have people in our lives. Maybe we're going through it ourselves where we're asking these questions of, God, why has this happened? Why have you allowed this loss? Why have you allowed this tragedy? Why, God, have you allowed this suffering? And this is Paul's point when he writes his letter to the Philippians. He said, we should grieve, but we should not grieve as those who have no hope. Grieving is healthy. Grieving is a part of healing. But we don't grieve the same way the world grieves. We grieve as those having hope. And why do we still have hope in the midst of loss or in the midst of tragedy or in the midst of suffering, we have hope because we are part of a family, a family in heaven and a family on earth. We have a father and we're a part of a family and, and, and that doesn't end at death. It doesn't end when there's loss. It doesn't end when there's suffering. It's not just any family, but it's the family of God from whom the whole family is named. That's your family name too. If you are in Christ, that's your family. God is your father. And he has conquered sin and he has conquered death through Jesus Christ. And if Christ is in you, and if you are in Christ, then you are never without hope. Even in the midst of your greatest suffering and loss. And this church in Ephesus was experiencing suffering and loss. And Paul is reminding them, you are part of a greater family. And no doubt some had passed on, some had been killed in persecution. Others would be killed in persecution. But Paul is reminding them we are part of a family, a family that's in heaven and a family that's in earth, a family. And God is our father. This is the family that we have been made a part of. He says, this is the God that I bow my knees to. This is the God that I call upon on your behalf. Our prayers are powerful in Christ, and we should never hesitate to use the power of prayer. And Paul says, you have been made part of this family, and you've been given the privilege to come to the very presence of your Father and make your petition known, whom, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Verse 16 that he would, that he, Paul says, here is my prayer, that he would grant you, 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that he would grant you. Paul said, my prayer is that God the Father would grant you. Now think about that for a moment. Paul didn't say, I go to God and I demand that he do something. Paul says, I go to God and I petition that he would grant you. Grant you what? That he would grant you to be strengthened with might. Paul's prayer is that God would grant you, that he would grant us might, that he would grant us his spirit, that he would even grant us his faith. For the believers to be strengthened with might, Paul says, my prayer is that God would grant that to you. For you to be strengthened with God's might, God must grant that to you. This is the importance of prayer. James writes, you have not because you ask not. And we're going to see this, and you need to understand this. God is not dependent upon your asking. But God says, ask. Jesus gives the parables of prayer in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, and he talks about persevering in prayer. Asking and persevering in your asking. If God knows what we need before we ask, then why do we need to ask? Because God has given us the privilege to commune with Him because we are in a relationship with God. We are the family of God. Is there communication in families? Well, they're supposed to be, right? Paul lays it out right here. He says the family. And we've been given the privilege to come to our Father. And we bring our petition. This is what Paul is doing on behalf of the believers. He says, this is my prayer that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might. This reminds us how limited our own strength and our own might are. As Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 5, apart from me, without me, you can do a few things. Is that what he said? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You don't think that you are utterly dependent upon God? Think again. If the thought of being utterly dependent upon God disturbs you, then you don't know who God truly is. And you don't truly know who you are. Because if we truly knew who we were, we would not only be okay with being dependent upon God, we would desperately seek Him. Because we would understand that apart from Him, we can do nothing.
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Paul doesn't just, he doesn't just stop with that he would grant you, but Paul qualifies what it is that he is seeking on behalf of the believers. He qualifies what it is that God is going to grant to them. Paul specifies the quality of this grant to us by God. It is according to the riches of his glory. It is rich in its substance in accordance with the exceeding excellence of his glory. We say these words, we read these words according to the riches of his glory, but we don't think about the meaning that's poured into these words. That the Holy Spirit didn't just tell us what was going to be given to us, but the Holy Spirit begins to describe in detail, it paints a picture for us that what God is giving to us is in accordance with the richness of who he is, the abundance and the exceeding excellence of his glory that is beyond our comprehension. This is what God is granting to us. The strength that comes through his might is in accordance with this richness. It's in accordance with this exceeding excellence of his glory. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit. This might is not coming from some carnal or worldly source. It didn't come out of gold's gym. It didn't come out of 24-hour fitness. It didn't come from the free weight section of the gym. And now I'm all pumped up. Now this is, this is a, a might that comes through his spirit. Well, well what, what spirit is that? Romans 8.11 says, The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And that spirit that dwells in you will strengthen your mortal body. The same powerful spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that overcame sin, the same spirit that overcame death and the grave, the same spirit that hovered over the void and darkness of creation and shone a light, not only in the earth, but that's the same spirit that shone a light in your heart to give to you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is the spirit through which God will grant us to be strengthened with his might. For we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul writes that later on in this letter. It's recorded for us in Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Bible never tells us to be strong in our own power. It never tells us to walk in our own strength. The Bible constantly reminds us that we have no power and we have no strength to walk in. Now, we want to believe that we do. We want to believe that we're powerful. We want to believe that we're strong. We lift weights to prove that we are. We wield power to prove that we are. But our strength and our power is utter 
weakness and futility in the face of God. And what God is telling us as believers is what you are facing in this life, the true battle, the true challenge you're facing is not a carnal battle. It's not a natural battle. You can overcome those things with sheer strength. You can go to the gym to overcome those kinds of foes and obstacles. You can carry a gun or carry a knife or learn how to defend yourself against those things. But what God is telling us is those things aren't the things you should really be concerned about. Those are not the things you should really be afraid of. What is really opposing you, you can't fight it with a gun. You can't fight it with muscle. You can't become powerful enough in your flesh and in this earth to be able to fight that. You need a different kind of strength. You need a different kind of might. And if you spend your life and your time trying to find that other kind of strength, you've nothing but a weakling who has nothing but the illusion that you have power and you have none. Paul says what you need to do is get on your knees and cry out to God that he would grant to you to be strengthened with the power of his might. Because it is only in his might that we will be able to stand. To be strengthened with might through his spirit, look at this, in the inner man. There's another qualifier. The inner man. He doesn't say in the outer man. He says in the inner man. You go to the gym... I'm not opposed to going to the gym. Frankie got me a membership to the gym. And I went with him for about three months, and he almost killed me. <laughs> I remember the first day, six, what was it, Frankie? Six o'clock in the morning, body pump. This little old lady was leading that class. <laughs> Tell you what, about three-quarters of the way through that class, I, I had to. I had to walk out of there. I Bought a bottle, brought a bottle of water, but I drank that thing down after we got out of the sauna. Thinking, well, I'll go through an hour class, no problem. Got about 45 minutes through that thing, and I'm like, surely I can make it another 15. I couldn't do it. I could, by the time she got through pumping on my legs, I could barely walk to the water fountain. Mirrors all over the place. You know why they have mirrors in the gym? So you can see what's happening to your outer man. Oh, my outer man's getting bigger in the right way, you know. No. Paul says, here's my prayer that you would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. As much as we glorify physical strength and physical endurance, the strength and the might that God gives to us is much more powerful than any physical strength of muscle and flesh. We've bought the lie and we too often put our trust in physical might. The strength and might that God gives to his children is not in the outer man, it is in the inner man. Read your Christian history. Read the, re- the recorded history of what happened to the church under persecution. Read the detailed and graphic accounts of how the Christians were taken to their death and they were devoured, literally. There was no outer strength. There was no physical strength that could save them, but there was a strength in their inner man that carried them to their death. 
with absolute courage, with absolute fortitude, with absolute strength that was not rooted and grounded in their own, but it was rooted and grounded in the might of the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Try as we might, this outward man is perishing, and it is perishing day by day. But here's the good news. The inward man is being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that renewal is taking place day by day. We're all called to honor our bodies, and that, that is because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, because they hold the true life and the true power. That is the life and the power of the inner man who is being renewed and conformed according to the image of the Son of God. And that inner man is made alive. He is enlivened by the resurrection life and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ who dwells in us. He is our life. That Christ, Paul says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is my prayer that God would not only grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit, but that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may comprehend. He says, I pray that God would grant you that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not only that He would grant you to be strengthened with His might, but that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Unless Christ is dwelling in your heart through faith, all else is in vain. Do you hear me, church? If Christ is not dwelling in your heart through faith, everything else is in vain. You can't gain enough strength. You can't gain enough power. You can't gain enough authority, riches, nothing of this earth, nothing of this world that will make a difference. If Christ is not dwelling in your hearts through faith, everything else is useless and in vain. To walk by faith is to walk knowing that Christ is dwells in us and that we dwell in Him. It's not just knowing. It's not just saying, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? Read Matthew 7, 21-23. Those people knew Jesus They did things in Jesus' name, but at the end, Jesus said, Depart from me, for I do not know you. If Christ is dwelling in your heart through faith, you will know that God knows you. The salvation that God gives to us is not a hope so, maybe so. It is a no for sure. 
First John chapter 5, John writes, he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. We're called to walk wisely, not as fools, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We're called to understand what the will of God is and to live accordingly. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to willingly walk under the influence and control of the Spirit of God. This is what Ephesians 5, 16-18 teaches us. We're not just to have some knowledge up here. We're to be filled. In our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, we are to walk under the influence and the control of the Spirit of God. You can't do that unless God grants that to you. But when He grants that to you, you must choose to do that. You understand what I'm saying? You and I, we have a choice. This is why Paul's writing this letter. He's telling these believers, he says, don't let the circumstances of your life just blow you around everywhere. Take hold of the promises of God. Take hold of the reality and the truth of who you are in Christ. Now walk in that. Stand in that. Yes, I know there's opposition. The fiery darts of the enemy are coming against you. But stand, stand in that truth, stand in that reality, and don't let the onslaught of the enemy push you back, knock you down. If you get knocked down, you choose to get back up. You get knocked down, you say, well, I'll get back up when God gets me up. No, God has given you the power and the ability to get back up. Get back up and stand. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. How you walk out your faith, you have to choose every day, how am I going to walk my faith out? What is my witness going to be? What am I declaring to powers and principalities through my life? What am I going to do with the tribulation and the trials that come to me? Am I going to Am I going to just have a pity party? Am I just going to moan and complain and wonder whether there's really a God in heaven? Or am I going to latch hold of the truth and the promises of God and say, you know what? God is not defined by my circumstances. God defines my circumstances. Now, you and I might not like that because we don't always like our circumstances. So when our circumstances are great... But we don't have a problem saying, God, define my circumstances. When my circumstances are lousy, we don't want to go there and think, oh, God is defining my circumstances right now. He's not just God in the good times. He's God in the bad times. He's not just God when life is sweet. He's God when life is bitter. He's not just God when there's gain and abundance. He is God when there is suffering and loss. Now, what do I do with that? And this is what Paul is writing about. This is what Paul is praying about. And he goes on and he says this. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love. may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. Man is always sinfully prone to look on the outward appearance, to look at our circumstances from the outside. But God is always looking inward to the heart. When Paul writes about being rooted and grounded in love, to be rooted and grounded in love pictures for us this vertical and horizontal relationship that's associated with God's love. 1 John 4.19, we love God because God first loved us. Here is the vertical relationship of love. Love didn't originate with me to God and then come back down to me from God. The Bible is very clear. God began... Love began with God because God is love. Read 1 John chapter 4. John says it multiple times in that chapter. God is love. And you get to verse 19 and he says, and we love God because God first loved us. So this vertical relationship with, of love doesn't begin with me. It begins with God. And God poured his love into my heart. And from the love God poured into my heart, I am now able to give that love back to God. But there's not just a vertical relationship of love. There is the horizontal relationship of love. So when John writes his letter, 1 John, he says, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. Because if God who is love, has put love in your heart, and that love has been returned to God, then you cannot help but love your brother. Here is the horizontal relationship of love. That if God has truly put his love in my heart, then I will have love for my brothers and my sisters. Yeah, well, what, if, what happens when they're mean to me? The love God has for us is not conditional. The love God has for us is unconditional. Now, I ask that question, what happens when they're mean to me? The problem with us is that we don't really understand what love is. We think love is just always being nice. How nice, parents, how nice do your children think you're being when you're disciplining them? But do you discipline them because you love them? So for you, your discipline is motivated out of love, but for the child receiving the discipline, it doesn't seem very nice. We can't let the world and our carnal nature define what love is. God defines what love is because God is love. So there is correction. There is discipline. There are those things that don't always seem and feel nice, but they are absolutely loving and consistent with the God who is love. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Paul's prayer is not only for the believers in Ephesus, but he says all the saints, that there would be a comprehension of the magnitude and majesty of God's love what is the length and depth and height 
What is the fullness to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. The love of God is personified in the love of Christ. The love of Christ is now personified in us. How is the world going to know the love of Jesus if the body of Jesus does not manifest his love? How did the world know the love of the Father? The world came to see and know the love of the Father because the Father sent the Son, and the Son personified in the flesh and was the expression, the perfect image, the express image of the Father and his love. And that was true even when Jesus was driving them out with whips from the temple when he was chastising the Pharisees in Matthew 23, calling them a brood of vipers, yes, that was consistent with the love of the Father. This love of Christ passes knowledge. It's too great for us to fully comprehend, but it is so great that we stand in awe as we look into the incomprehensible width and depth and height of it. This is a really poor analogy, but it's like standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon and trying to imagine how many tablespoons of water it would take to fill it up. It's it's incomprehensible. That's such a poor picture of the width and the depth and the height of God's love. That the Grand Canyon compared to the love of God is, is, like a, is like an atom. It's like a microscopic particle that you would have to look at under an electron microscope to, just to be able to see. God's love is so grand, so great, so awesome that it is past knowledge, the Bible says. Paul prays that even though it is past knowledge, he said, my prayer is that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Seems like kind of a contradiction in terms there, right? Listen, I might not fully know all the dimensions and all the things about the Grand Canyon as I stand there, and I was privileged to be able to do this one time, but as I stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon, I was... I was literally awestruck at the, the grandeur and the majesty of it. I don't have to fully comprehend it to understand the majesty and the grandeur. That's the, that's the love of God. The question is, can you see the majesty and the grandeur of God's love? Can you see that it is past knowledge Can you see that whatever struggle, whatever persecution, whatever tribulation, whatever sorrow, whatever tragedy that you're going through in life, that the love of God is so much greater, so much bigger, so much more for us to be in awe of, that it causes those things in our life to be dwarfed? when we put them in the context of God's love. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we find ourselves in this love that passes knowledge, we seek to comprehend. We desire to plumb the depths, to scale the heights, to traverse the width of this love that passes knowledge. As we seek to know that which passes our comprehension, which passes human knowledge, when we seek to know the incomprehensible, we cannot help but be filled with the fullness of God. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. The love of God is greater than anything we could ever comprehend. Yet Paul prays, I pray you comprehend it. The love of God passes knowledge, but Paul prays that we would know the love of God. And in my desire to know, in my desire to comprehend, in my desire to plumb the depths of it, in my desire to try to wrap some measure of myself around it, something miraculous happens. I am filled with all the fullness of God. It's like sitting at a table. We're going to do that in just a few minutes. And you're hungry. Amazing. When you sit down at a table and you're hungry and food is put in front of you. I mean, not just any kind of food, but I mean the food you love, the things you love. And you're told, freely eat. You sit down at that table, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get filled up. And that's what God does. God says, you're you're never going to understand what I'm giving you in fullness, but I'm giving it to you, and I'm telling you to eat it, to drink it, to partake of it, to be filled with it. Really, God? You mean I can just eat as much as I want? As much as you want, you just take it in. You eat it. And God says, if you have that kind of hunger, that kind of desire, you will be filled. Because when you're hungry and they put food in front of you and sit you at a table and say, now eat, what do you do? You eat. Because you're in the family. Because you didn't just come to a stranger's table, but you've sat down at the, fam- at the table of your family, the table of your father. And you're sitting at his table, and he's just put the feast in front of you, and, and you're hungry, and he says, now eat, and eat till you're filled. And then when you need to eat some more, you eat some more. To the point that, that we can live in this state of fullness. That's what Paul meant when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. Live in that fullness. This is what he prays for the believers. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he gives this at the end of his prayer. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now to him who is able 
to do exceedingly abundantly. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon Him. He is able. We are not except through Him. We can do exceedingly, He can do exceedingly abundantly above. We cannot. He is not dependent upon what we ask or think. He is exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. That's good news, church. Because if what God gave us was limited to what we were able to ask or think, you don't even want to think about where we would be as the human race. According to the power that works in us, not just some impersonal power working as a force in the universe. No, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. It's in us. That power is in us. It's not just some power out here. It's a power that is in us. This is the power of his universe creating, death-defying, life-authoring, life-resurrecting spirit that dwells in us through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know the power that dwells in you? Do you know who you are? Do you know what resides on the inside of you through faith in Jesus Christ? I pray that you would come to know and comprehend that, even as Paul prays it for the church here. His spirit dwells in us. His power works in us. And if God be for us, then who can be against us? To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church. You are the church. You are to bring him glory by Christ Jesus who dwells in us through faith. Each of us individually are to bring him glory. And as we do that individually, we are to do that corporately as the individual members come together, function together as one body and give witness to Christ who is the head of his body. Look at this, to all generations. Paul is not just focused on what was happening in Ephesus. Just a few decades after the birth of Jesus. Paul was focusing on forever and ever, amen, to all generations. Are you living your life as a stepping stone? Are you living beyond yourself and to the generations that follow? Or are you living your life to yourself? When you come here, do you come with the generations in mind? Every week we bring these little kids up and they come and they listen to the stories. And I know it's hard work, parents. We used to have children's church and we'd send our kids next door. And I know it's hard work keeping kids in here. But if you come here and you're mindful, not of just what's going to happen to you on a Sunday morning for a couple of hours, but if you come here mindful of what's happening to the generations, why are, why are generations, why is this generation, the previous generation, leaving the church wholesale? Because we've not done church mindful of the generations. 
We've done church mindful of how to give parents a break. And we say, well, we're teaching the kids in their own. No, come on, let's get real. It's not about that. That's why we have Sunday school for your kids at 915. We do teach them in their own classes according to their own. But this is corporate worship. This is the family table. When you go to a family reunion, you don't get a babysitter for your kids, do you? If you do, shame on you. When you go to the family reunion, you take the family. And when you eat together, you all eat together, right? And when you eat together, some of the kids do better than other kids, right? But some of the kids are messy. And they get macaroni and cheese on the floor. They get it in the carpet. They get it in their hair. They get it all over their clothes, you know. But, but hey, they're kids. You expect it, right? And you teach them. And they grow up, and you go to the family reunion, and pretty soon you see those kids are, and now they can eat without getting food all over their clothes. And, and, and they're not running around and acting like two-year-olds. Now they're, they've learned how to... Do you come here with the generations in mind? You should. Whether you have kids or whether you don't have kids, we're all part of the family. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're mothers, we're fathers, we're grandpas, we're grandmas, we're Gigi's and pawpaws, we're aunts and uncles, we're the family. And we should all come together with the generations in mind because what we're doing has got to be a stepping stone to the generations that come after us. The church got here in 2016 from 33 AD, when Jesus was crucified, the church got here 2,000 years later because the church has been mindful of the generations. So we've got a generation or two that hasn't been mindful of the generations, but guess what? The love of God is bigger than that. God is more powerful than our selfishness and our self-centeredness, and God will build his church and he will complete his work in spite of us. But here's the beautiful thing, church. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing, and he wants us to be willing participants. He wants us to understand what's at stake, and he wants us to do things mindful of the generations. Paul says to all generations forever and ever, amen. Are you building the kingdom with the generations in mind? Are you part of Jesus building his church? Are you part of that with a view to the generations, to all generations, forever and ever? I pray that you are. I pray that you are to his glory. Amen.